Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, today I have a super fun and fantastic guest. His name is Frank Cayetti, and you may recognize him from his numerous works in film and TV and as an improviser and actor. So hello there, Frank. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so glad we could connect. I saw you in a video recently where you were performing with Jane Moores and Jay Suko and some other folks, and it was just great. And that's when I decided I really wanted to connect with you for my very original title, Improv Interviews Podcast. <laughs> hey, you're you're telling us what we're going to get. <laughs> no illusions. Um yeah, thank you. That show in particular was really fun because it was sort of a mishmash of people that were brought together and it, it had been, it was super fun to play. And we've since done another show. So it's just a ball to get up and play with folks in a group that has never played together or rehearsed right. together. Right, right. And Jay Suko has been my coach for over two years now. So uh, I just love following him and all of his friends. In fact, I should call this a podcast the hashtag I know Jay Suko because that's where a lot of my guests come from. <laughs> Jay, yeah, Jay, you know, there's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. There's like the one degree of Jay Suko when it comes right. to <laughs> um, he knows everybody and he's such a good guy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I've known him for 20 plus years. Uh and he knows he knows literally so many people uh, beyond like in the like I'm known from Chicago originally in Los Angeles, which are two huge markets, but there's improv everywhere. And he knows people, you know, from theaters in cities I didn't even know had an improv theater. You right. know? He just knows everybody, which and that's a great ambassador for yes. improvisation and sort of connecting us all together, which is great. Absolutely. And improv is about connection, I believe, totally. Connecting and oh. getting to know. What a great community of people, for the most part, um, that we are. <laughs> I fully agree. Yeah, I feel like uh, some of the best human beings I've ever known and met are from my improv community and world. And my life has been greatly enriched beyond the time I've had on stage. Absolutely. So now you're from the Chicago area. Where did you grow up? In the western suburbs of Chicago, a town called Bloomingdale. Mm -hmm. um, my father is originally from Chicago, the city itself, the west side. Uh, there is no east side because the east side is the lake. Um, most <laughs> people talk about the north side and the south side, but there is a west side to Chicago. Right. And then my mom is from New York. She's from Long Island, uh, Hempstead, which is very close to Queens. And uh, I learned a lot of swear words at a young age because I had uh, two parents that were of Italian descent. Yes. <laughs> York and Chicago. 
Well, um, what position were you in your th- in your family? You have siblings, older, younger. I do. I'm the only child of the pairing of my parents. So my parents were previously married. Uh, I'm the last one. I'm the youngest, and I'm a boy. I have three half sisters uh, who were my mother's children, and my uh, but had they had a different dad, and I grew up with them. Uh huh. Have two half brothers that were my father's children prior to one of them I've never met before, and another uh, I met when I was 12 years old. Um, And we have a relationship now. Um, My father had a bit of a checkered past, had connections to organized crime, and um, he left Chicago to run out a statute of limitations and under an assumed name and had a whole other life under a different name in Pennsylvania and had a son and that son resents him greatly. (laughs) And I've never had the opportunity to meet him. Uh, And so there's one sibling that's out there. I'm close to all of my siblings in many ways, but also our adult life has sort of stretched us all over the place and with children and whatever. But so that's a very complicated thing. We're very close to the Brady Bunch, if you think about it. Um, but, <laughs> um, the Brady Bunch meets the Godfather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Brady Bunch meets the Sopranos. Um, yeah. And the Soprano Bunch. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm the only child. So I grew up in a household with three sisters and I was the only boy and I was the youngest. So that sort of, I'm sure, colored why I'm here and do what I do and the attention that I sought um, and all of that sort of stuff. But um, I learned so much from having sisters. And the closest one is age is eight years older than me. And then my oldest is 13, almost 14 years older than me. So wow. a bit of an age gap. So do they adore you and love playing with you? And when I was little, um, yes and no. I think there was an, a level of resentment, I'm sure, as well, just because who's this baby and this right, baby. Right. You know, my mom really wanted to have a boy. And um, so I think there was maybe a level of resentment that we could probably unearth. <laughs> but uh for the most part, yes. And like. I'm in my household, in my family, I'm Frankie. And so uh, in my, the rest of my life, no one calls me Frankie. Uh, good friends do. And my, but um, I'm always, I will always be Frankie, regardless of that. I'm an, I'm a full grown adult and have been for quite some time. So uh, what did your mother do? Did she work? She did. She was a career waitress. Uh, she busted her butt as a as a waitress for 40 plus years. Wow. She's the toughest human being I know um, and uh, a hard, hard worker. And she sort of she really retirement was difficult for her. She she really wanted to keep going, keep going. Um, but yeah, she that's what her main job was. Her entire life uh, was serving. That's awesome. And yeah. uh, and she's still around. She and, is. And I lost my father many years ago, uh, but my mother um, still kicking around. She lives in uh, in the Ozarks. My fa- my stepfather and her retired to uh, North Central Arkansas, which is you know makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, I, I you know when you say the word Ozark, I just think Jason Bateman. So I just you know. 
my association yeah. goes there right away. That's, yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful, it's a really beautiful. Yes, yes, it is, isn't it? Um, and I think that they went there for many reasons. Cost of living is cheaper than Illinois and taxes and all of that sort of stuff. Slower life. Winter isn't as harsh as the Chicago winter. Right. Um, and it's a lovely place, but it is more more remote and not as close to a large city than I think my mom has really ever lived for any period of time. So it was an adjustment. So when you were younger, like five, six, seven, um, did you love watching movies on TV? Did your sisters or mom take you to the movies? And what was like the first movie that you really saw that really impacted you, if you can remember? Great question. Um, and mine was Peter Pan, the cartoon. That's how old I am. When that That's cool, though. Came out. That's yeah. classic. And then I went home and I thought, I, I if I thought good thoughts, I could fly. So I got on my bed. I thought good thoughts and I fell on my face. <laughs> yeah, I feel like. Yeah, you've, we all have tried to recreate some movie magic, right? <laughs> in our lives, in our bedrooms alone, whatever it may be. Um, when you talk about movies, when I think of my movies in childhood, I think of a, a different time, but right. uh, but there was definitely reverence for film in my family. Um, I think of more of like early teenage years, but those five, six, seven, the one that sticks out to me is any of the Star Wars, probably the one, um, The Empire Strikes Back is the one that I distinctly remember seeing in the movie theater and being blown away by and wanting all the toys and, you know, all of that stuff was game changing. But I, I feel like we grew up in a time where film, there were so many amazing films that were being made in like iconic type things. Yeah. But uh, my dad was a bit of a technophile. So like we had a Betamax. I don't want to brag. <laughs> um, but I just did. We Go had ahead and brag. <laughs> Um, but he also, of course, connected in his own way. He got like first run films, things that were still in the theater on video. So like I remember watching E.T. for the first time on video. Wow. Wow. <laughs> like, How did this? You know, I'm just like, cool. But um, so, yeah, I think movies and, and laughter were a big part of life and family. Um, Again, because of the separation, there probably wasn't a, an age with my siblings. There probably wasn't a ton of stuff when I was a kid that we all enjoyed, you know, that we would enjoy together. So I, as I got a little older and I could sort of intake more adult themes and films, I probably connected more in that level. So when did you realize that you were an actor? You wanted to act or you were a little bit of a comedian. Did that start in childhood? Um, um, there's a weird, uh, there's an interesting thing about that because I, I see it in, currently. I have an 11 year old daughter and an eight year old son. And wow. my 11 year old daughter is um, an introvert who wants to be an extrovert, who really wants to perform, but uh, it, it is difficult to crack. And I feel like I was very similar in that, like, I loved being funny. I loved, like, there was joy at, I think, at the dinner table and people laughing and stuff. Uh -huh. So, like, and then I think about, like, in school, like, trying to make your friends laugh at the cafeteria table 
But doing it as a performance did not come to me until later, like probably high school. Like I wasn't a kid that was like, now Frankie's gonna do a show, you know? <laughs> like I was not that kid, wasn't interested in doing that per se. Um, so I was definitely, I, I loved levity and making people laugh, yeah. but it was sort of a familial thing, not a performance thing and like a, a buddy thing, you know? Um, so then I feel like high school is when it started to click and I was interested in it and started doing more. And then I had a couple friends that were like-minded and we started to ask teachers that instead of writing essays or reports, if we could make movies. And so, which would ended up being way more time and energy than it would have been to write a paper, but it was so much more fun. And then we would show it for the class. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would edit on, this is how old I am. I would edit from VHS to VHS. It was uh-huh. like prior to, to digital editing or yeah. school having digital editing. Um, and I, that's when I was like, okay, I love making stuff. I love making other people laugh. And then uh, my junior year of high school, I decided to not play football and go out for the play which was what what was that play yeah what was it anything goes in olden days a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking now heaven knows oh how wonderful that cole porter stuff that's fantastic great doesn't hold up the way that you might in 2023 sensibility um but still the songs are amazing the show all of that but um yeah so i had that's when it sort of turned a corner and I got more interested and involved uh, in that way. And then in college, I still didn't want to study it per se. Uh-huh. Um, so I, and I, you went to college in Colorado, right? Correct. Did you go to Colorado State? Correct. Yeah, I went to Colorado College for a while. Oh, wow. In Colorado yeah. Well, you know, I'm a bit older than you, and that was in the age of drug, sex, rock and roll, and all three of those got me kicked out in my sophomore year. Wow. <laughs> That's a good school, though. Oh, it was a great school. It was a wonderful... Yeah. We had the doors for our first homecoming at the Broadmoor Hotel. No way. No way. Uh-huh. They had been signed right before I light my fire. Um you know, became popular. And one of the students was in LA and caught them at the Troubadour or whatever. And I was literally 15 feet away from Jim Morrison after the show. But I was too shy to say anything. I mean, talk about a rock star. I know. (laughs) But anyway, it's not about me, it's about you. But what do you think about me? (laughs) That's so cool. The Broadmoor is also a historic hotel. It's a beautiful Um, yeah, that's really cool. I loved Colorado and I, I still have friends there. Um, and I'm so thankful for what it did and how it shaped me as a human. And, um, but I went to school to study, I studied rhetoric. Um, and then, and then my sophomore year, here's another way that sports turned into theater for me. So I was a baseball player in high school. And then in college, I played baseball. And while I was in college, the our program at Colorado State was demoted from Division One to Division Three to ended up being club baseball. 
And it was partially because it was considered a non-revenue generating sport. Right. Um, and Title IX, which is a very good thing. Title IX meaning evening out the amount of men's and women's athletics. Mm-hmm. And um, and Colorado State didn't have a great baseball program, but I was just happened to be there at the time that this was happening. So what it ended up happening is, is the commitment level that you had to have at certain level was much less. So I was like, I'm going to go out for the play in the theater department. And I got a part. And then because I had more time, because I wasn't, I didn't have to spend so much time playing baseball. So uh, I started doing theater and I'm sort of thankful that baseball went away for me at that time because it, it brought me to theater. And that's where my eyes were really opened. I had an amazing teacher who oddly enough was from Chicago, went to the same high school as my uncle uh, is from the West side of Chicago, connected with him. And then I had another uh, professor who came in in my junior year who I just had lunch with this past fall. I was in Fort Collins uh, for a friend's birthday and got to tell her how important the work that she did and how her her, uh, teaching affected my entire life. Right. I had these amazing teachers and they said, look, our program doesn't have a ton of money. We don't have big budget theater shows, but what we can focus on is your craft as a performer. And so I added a minor in acting and directing. Uh I feel like that's when it really changed for me. And then I went back to Chicago during break one year and saw a show at Second City. And that's when I was like, I want to do that. Now, was that your first time at Second City, even though you were growing up? I had seen it, but I had seen it at, through eyes of like, I had never seen it as like, I could do that. I was, yeah, I was seeing yeah. it as a show. but then I had seen, I was, I think 19 and uh, it was Tina Fey, Scott Adsit, uh, uh, Rachel Dratch, uh, Kevin Dorff, Jenna Jolovitz and Jim Zulovic, an amazing cast of people uh, with an amazing show and just blew my mind. Oh, actually, I think Adam McKay. Adam McKay was in the wow, first. Wow, yeah. It was insanity. And so that changed everything. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. No, that's okay. You can be long-winded. Okay. Um, how amazing. So you completed college. Um, did you go back in the summertime at all to study at Second City? Or when did you actually start going to study there? I After graduation. So I enrolled... Um, I graduated mid-year, so I graduated in December, and then uh, in January, I moved back to Chicago and enrolled basically immediately um, and started training and immersing myself in the vibrant Chicago comedy scene I was so lucky to be a part of. Wow. Now, did you have to support yourself outside of, you know, to go to class and everything, or what, yeah. kind, of work, what kind of jobs did you have? Well, I interned at Second City to get classes. So I was the the corporate side was called, uh, they call it BizCo, but it was uh, Second City Communications at the time. It's now called Second City Works. But um, I basically was like a gopher and I filed stuff and sort of stood around and waited for someone to tell me what to do, but I got classes. And then I waited tables and bartended and um, to support what I wanted to do. And I, I started doing comedy sports. That's how I initially met Jay Suko. Yeah. I was going to ask you about comedy sports. Yeah. 
So that was the first place ensemble that I auditioned for and got into um, as far as like straight improv. I had done the show called Tony and Tina's Wedding. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Oh, great. There you go. <laughs> how funny. How funny. Um, and, but that was like, you know, it was improvised, but sort of, you know, it was kind of a mix. But then right. um, comedy sports was where the, the first place where I got an opportunity to play and I actually got paid to perform. Yeah. And, um, studied at IO and Second City and then sort of wherever they would let me play and get as much time as I could. And I was very fortunate to relatively early on start make a li- making a living performing. Yeah. So I was like, I maybe 25 when I could give up my serving jobs because I could support myself through acting and corporate work and commercial work. Wonderful. So I, I was really lucky in that regard. And then I really have not had many jobby jobs since, um, right. which can be, we can get into that, but that could also be part of like when you're, you know, in your forties and you're looking at like, what skills do I have that are transferable to a more, you know, consistent income and realizing that, that you don't have a very good resume for anything, but performance. <laughs> and luckily you're an acting, you're, uh, you know, an actor who gets roles and you're living as an actor, which is such a dream come true for so many people. I want to go back to Second City. Was uh, Joyce Sloan there when you were there? Yeah. Joyce, amazing. Amazing. Um, which I think, you know, Joyce rooted the history of the Second City because between 1959 and 2011, her passing everybody that ever went performed at second city joyce knew joyce mentored joyce talked to so she was a living history and such a supportive lovely force and sort of watched it grow from this bohemian theater into more mainstream and then you know even sort of corporate entity if you will um so Joyce was incredible and I was incredibly um, intimidated by Joyce, not because of her behavior, but just of her stature. Yeah. And, but when you got to know Joyce, she was the most wonderful. And as I was leaving second city, they had started this series where they had alums interview other alums. And I had done a series. I had, I had done the first interview and I interviewed Tim Kazarinsky. Oh, wow. <laughs> Tim Kazarinsky's the best. Um, I can tell you a story about being with Tim Kazarinsky in Italy. That was one of the most hilarious things ever. He's just so funny. Um, but Joyce had done the second interview. And afterwards, uh, you know, she had talked about so much. It was so interesting. And I remember her, she was walking out of the theater and she looked at me and she goes, pretty good, Frank Cayetti. You know, like, like, she's like, I can get up there and do that. I'm like, I just loved it so much. And my mom she's, talks about Joyce pulled her aside uh, one, at a show and said, you're Frank's mom, blah, blah, blah. And said really nice things and encouraging things. And my mom to this day remembers that conversation. So to me, Joyce was uh, 
you know, Viola Spolin is sort of the, the, the mother of all improvisation. And, and Joyce was the mother of all Second City. And uh, her, she's so missed, but she's in all of us that had an opportunity to, to work with her and to talk to her. She's beautiful. Yeah, I got to interview Cheryl and that was wonderful experience because she grew up there too. So incredible, well, yeah. Beautiful. yeah. And I mean, and I'm sure that was a very interesting perspective because there was, I mean, that was her life, right? Yeah. Cheryl grew up in the theater, literally. You yes. Know? Yeah. Like, so that must be such an interesting to be the the child of this person, who you know, if Bill Murray's going to talk to anybody at Second City, it's Joyce, right? You know, and so like it is, it is so surreal. But um, what a what a gift it was to all of us, and something that's I feel like so sorely missed. Yeah. Uh, at Second City now. Beautiful. I also wanted to ask, who was the musical director while you were there? Well, Ruby Streak still was on main stage. Uh huh. Ruby, are you familiar with Ruby? Not too much, no. Well, Ruby is one of the coolest cats on the planet. Um, Ruby used to have uh, a podcast for a few years. And now I can't remember the name of the podcast, but Ruby Streak, S-T-R-E-A-K, um, amazing. She was the main stage musical director for 25 plus years. Wow. You know, so between her and Craig Taylor, who was the main stage stage manager for 40 years, like it was crazy. Wow. Wow. Main stage. I did the touring company. I did the, the resident company in Las Vegas, the touring company based in Chicago. And then the ETC stage, which is like another resident company, but it's yep. sister stage of ET of main stage. But uh, my musical director, we had a few, but they're all brilliant. Uh, Trey Stone was his name. Brilliant. Uh, Chad Kroger, a gentleman named Corbett Lunsford. It's sort of a thankless job in many ways, but that role now has even increased the the musical director at a second city review now is a sound designer is a composer it goes beyond just the kind of classical playing the piano and underscoring scenes now the expectation is to create an entire soundscape for the show and so there's a lot i i just directed an etc show a couple in the, now it's almost two years ago but i had a, a wonderful musical director named taliski ramey and taliski made everything he there were all his drops and beats were original with the exception of a few that I sort of forced him to have that were recorded songs because I wanted them to evoke a certain feeling so it needed to be a familiar piece of music but they're so talented and their role is enormous in that and how it can drive energy how it can drive pace oh yeah oh yeah just incredible. Um, I don't know if you can hear my dog out there. She's begging to come in. Mm. So uh, I might have to let her in, Frank. I'm sorry. Hold on one second, okay? I'm just going to pause. Florida? Yeah, I'm in Florida. And where are you right now? Los Angeles. LA? Yeah, yeah LA. Florida. It's called Naples. Oh, yeah. Is that on the Gulf Coast? About yes, it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, Hurricane Ian and all that good stuff. We were very lucky. And the weather hasn't been too cool in L.A. this year, has it? There's been a lot of 
Uh, I don't mind it. I'm a Midwesterner. So like, I appreciate the rain. I appreciate some semblance of seasons. Um, And the mountains in LA and surrounding look so beautiful because they're sort of lush and green. Because they'll turn brown because everything will get so dry. So I have appreciated it. um, But I know it's not the best for anyone, for everyone. But it's been a little colder and wetter than it has been in the past. I've been there once and I was in Beverly Hills and Ann Mirror drove by. Oh, wow. (laughs) There you go. And of course she waved at me and recognized me and, you know. (laughs) She was probably in awe, in awe. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you're a working actor. I was looking for that phrase before. You're a working actor. So when did you start You've, you have so many credits. I'm not going to list them all, but so many credits. And when what was your first acting gig and how did that work for you? Um, and are you speaking in regard to like uh, just theater, television, whatever? Well, outside of improv, I guess when you started expanding outside, because you were doing corporate gigs and things like that yeah. when you built Second City, yeah, but so actually in the, on the stage or in the uh, in film and TV. Yeah, so in Chicago, it was predominantly commercials, but mm-hmm. it could be extremely lucrative. Um, so there wasn't, at the time that I was in Chicago, there was not a ton of television or film production but there was a lot of com- uh, commercials. So I was fortunate to book some of those and then some little like independent film stuff here and there. And then um, my biggest break was Mad TV. What I was hired from Second City in Chicago. So when I was hired, I still lived in Chicago. Um, so that was like the first kind of regular, series regular paying gig. Right. Um, and you were just wonderful. I was talking before we started recording about, you know, playing the car salesman. My husband's a car salesman and the babies on TV uh, and the physicality you have and that because you're an athlete and the way you're able to move and jump and crawl. And and uh, the other one, um, no, this was on Jimmy Kimmel, of course, was the Captain Kangaroo one where yeah. a lot of physicality in that. But oh, it was so fun. So now, who was in the cast of Mad TV when you started? Uh, um, it, Michael McDonald, who was there for many years, like 10 plus years. Bobby Lee. Um, Keegan-Michael Key. Jordan Peele. Wow, yeah. Jordan Green. Krista Flanagan. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to forget somebody. Nicole Parker. Many of those people I sort of had a peripheral com- uh, connection to because they came from Chicago. Uh-huh. Oh, Stephanie Weir, who is a Second City alum. Yes, yes. Ahead of me. Um, but Keegan and Jordan and Nicole, I sort of knew, at least peripherally. Right. Because they had spent time in Chicago or were at Second City or just in the comedy scene when I was there as well. Um, who am I forgetting? Nicole Randall Johnson an amazing performer i said bobby i think that's it oh frank caliendo caliendo who's like there's one person in the business that has a name that sounds like mine and sort of looks like me and it's him (laughs) his skill set is way different than me i mean he's he's the master impressionist 
Um, and uh, he was so kind and cool to me when I first got there. He was oh. he was wonderful, oh. uh, kind and supportive. He was he put me. He was for a long time. He was doing the Fox NFL Sunday stuff, and he was like, "Hey, are you interested in doing any of these things?" I was like, "Of course." And he's like, "Come over and we'll do a bit." And so my like third week on Mad TV, I went and recorded something for Fox Sports with him, and like mad tv had a lot of viewers but fox sports had more it's yeah the end yeah <laughs> he's like you know he's like 15 million people are gonna watch this bit on sunday you know and i was like that's crazy and he had me back for a couple things he always looked at me such a cool dude um i can't believe i forgot him but he was sort of at the end of his contract and was kind of coming in and out if that makes sense um so he wasn't around the same amount as everybody else but i think that's everyone um in my time that I was there so I want so were you were you writing as well what was the back scene of mad tv were the actors also writing or who was the who were the writers back then lots of a great writing staff as well um but yeah the expectation for the performer is to write you know you you want to at least pitch ideas pitch characters because everyone's trying to justify their job and so if you're not looking out for yourself, no one's going to look out. So like the entire time I was at Mad TV, I was the, the, the least senior male cast member the entire time. Like, so the seniors never graduated. I was always a freshman, right? So I had to pitch because right. people were not going to necessarily write for me. Not to say that they didn't, but if they wanted to get a bid on that as a better chance it's going to make it to air, they're going to probably write in a more senior cast member. Oh my gosh, I forgot Ike Barinholtz, who I who I know, who's extremely successful now. He just produced and acted in History of the World Part Two. Uh-huh. I uh-huh. I, somewhere I have a picture of the cast and it's not in my office. Okay. <laughs> All right. The expectation is, is for you to pitch. Yes. They sort of there was some contract, not contractual union stuff where they not dissuaded you, but if you write the first draft of a sketch, then you need to be paid as a WGA writer. If you co-write it or you pitch the idea and a, and a staff writer wrote it, then you are not credited as the writer. Right. So most of the time it would be you partnering with a writer and pitching to them. So we had an amazing staff, um, Colton Dunn, who's a, a successful writer and actor, he wrote at Key and Peele. He was on the show uh, Superstore on NBC. Katie Dippold, who was who uh, wrote a, the Heat, wrote the Ghostbusters reboot, um, and has done a ton of work. Uh, uh, there was there was a lot of groundlings in the writing room. Lots of groundlings. Oh, really? Jim Wise. Yeah, Jim Wise is one of my favorite people. Uh, John Crane. Um, there was, there was this, the writing staff was big. Oh, Chris Cluse, who's one of my favorite people on the planet. Chris Cluse was a writer on Mad TV when I got there. He has had the most incredible career. I have to talk about Chris Cluse for you. Okay. So look him up, C-L-U-E-S-S. He has written for, he, and he's one of the funniest, kindest people. And I would just hang out in his office because I just adored him. He co-wrote with a woman named Maya Williams, who wrote on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I think In Living Color. 
Um, Chris Kluse has written for SCTV, SNL, Night Court, um, Simpsons, Mad TV. Like, oh my gosh. He's, he's written for everything. Like, it's incredible. He just, he lived in LA for many years. He just moved, I think, to either New Jersey or New York. He's still writing and doing stuff. And I keep in touch with them, sort of social media. And every once in a while, we exchange messages. But that guy was the best, the best. Um, so that was the writing staff of the team. They were so good. Um, and they were, I learned a lot. Like, I, I feel like I came in very green. Anywhere you go, is going to any show is going to have their own process but i felt like the more that i interjected my point of view and character the more success i was going to have there was definitely some stuff that was written for me that was a total gift like these two gentlemen brian and ryan was a writing team they wrote a character for me um that i now i can't remember his name but he was like a scientist and it was called who to thunk and it was such a gift uh for me to do this character and i loved him so much um, so the, it was definitely a team effort and you're, you're learning, but like the characters you mentioned, this, the car salesman and the baby were characters that I did at second city originally. And then sort of transferred the idea or the character to the, to the format in television. So let's talk about my favorite Key and Peele. Um, Nothing, not all of it's a favor, of course, but what was it like working with them? I mean, you were on their show too. They're, they're two of the most deserving, best performers and humans and so funny and talented. So in my opinion, every bit of success that they have, they earned. Yeah. Um, and that show was revolutionary in so many ways. Oh my God, and, yeah. And in, 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 interestingly enough, like at MAD, even at MAD, there was, they had, they may have had their own little difficulties to sort of find who they were in their voice. But then when they came together in Key and Peel, they really crystallized what they do and how they work well together. They did stuff together on MAD for sure. But it was sort of in shows like MAD and SNL, you're always sort of replacing an energy that existed before. Uh huh. Because it's an existing cast, you know, right. it's we're starting fresh. So now there's all of a sudden, whatever the types that you may think, like we need the impressionist, the physical funny guy, you know, the, the pretty woman that's, you know, uh, acerbic or whatever, like all these different types, right? And maybe those types change, but they exist. And so some of the time you're, they're asking you to do something that isn't necessarily a natural fit for them. Um, so they found their voices at MAD, but then I thought they just, they, an extension of that was Key and Peel, And they had an amazing writing staff, some of which were people from MAD. And they really found uh, such an amazing point of view. And they were, they were so cool. Their success was insane. I mean, they were on the cover of Time Magazine. Like they won, they, what did they win? Like, do they win a Pulitzer or something? Like, they won, like, oh, a Peabody. They won a Peabody. Peabody. Like, it's crazy. And now Jordan, like, 
is an enormous, you know, horror director. And I know they're wonderful. Every TV show, like, <laughs> they're both doing really well, you know. Um, uh, so incredible presences and we're just lucky to, you know, have them. They're the two of the coolest guys. Uh, one of the first bits I had done for Key and Peel, I came to set and Keegan was like, come in my trailer, come in my trailer. I got to tell you a story. And they, he told me the story of how they got to meet President Obama. Wow. They had done that, they had done that Luther, the, the, uh, the anger translator. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, and so it was this it was an incredible story and he was so excited to tell me about it and there were so many layers to it it was it's hilarious and Keegan is like very energetic and stands up and, and demonstrative and um, telling me the whole story and it was just so cool because like they're in the middle of like they're shooting their season you know probably in five weeks like they're it's packed in you know I... they're doing two sketches a day and and um, they were so welcoming and everything that I did with them, they just offered, Hey, do you want to do this bit or whatever? Um, so they're the coolest guys and I, their success to me is just so deserved. Yeah, they're just brilliant. I mean, I, I, I love watching them again and again. So, um, I think I referred to the fact that you were on the Jimmy Kimmel live show and yes did uh, a disgruntled Captain Kangaroo. I grew up with Captain Kangaroo, so it was really funny to watch. What was it like uh, uh, being on Kimmel? Was that a lot of fun or? Oh, so fun. It's the, the staff there is amazing. And that what's fun, I've done multiple things for them. So I've done stuff that's live, like live, live on right. tape in front of the studio audience. The Captain Kangaroo was like a pre-taped bit. So we shot right full day and then they cut it together and put it on the show it's so fun that was it was a bit that was sort of satirizing um the tom hanks film a beautiful day in the neighborhood which everybody loves and has reverence right. for Fred right. uh, and it was such an irreverent silly bit and I, it was so fun to be a part of and then uh when you put on that wig and you become captain kangaroo boy is it dumb and fun and it was such a gift to be able to play this like intensely angry <laughs> version of um, Captain oh, hysterical. And he's drunk in his shirts and now he's like, he was captain in an Australian army or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so dumb. I loved it. And can we was, catch, can we catch other things you did on Kimmel? Are they on, I, I found some on YouTube, but are there other things out there that we can find? Yeah, I mean, some, it's a little harder to find because they don't, necessarily name you in the you're not like credited or named right so it's like the bit itself um most of them end up on youtube in some way shape or form right yeah. um but yeah most recently i did a bit where i played aaron Rodgers' doctor um when aaron Rodgers was fighting against uh the covid vaccine and everything right right some sort of holistic uh doctor um so I, I think it would be like Aaron Rodgers's doctor, but then some of the time it would, that was, that bit was like a bit inside of the monologue. Mm -hmm. Like it's a 10 minute clip on YouTube and I'm the last three minutes. Right. Getting to Jimmy Kimmel, like with Kimmel, I was on the stage. So that was shot live with he's in front of the audience. And I was in a different part of the studio in my doctor's office. Right. 
Okay. So let me ask you about Jay Leno. When did you do the Jay Leno show? Remember when he had that short-lived show? (laughs) So Jay Leno had, right when like they switched over the Tonight Show to Conan, and then all that sort of hell broke loose, they and NBC got cold feet or something. Right. And like they ended up putting Jay Leno had a primetime show. I don't know if it was once a week or every night or something, but it was like before the tonight show, it was. really. Oh. Weird. And so I had done a bit, it was actually a really fun bit. It was um, uh, like a Leno family Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. And it was me and a bunch of groundlings and a, for, a Mad TV alum named Mary Shear, who was on the original cast. Uh, so I didn't know her, but I, it was fun to meet her. And uh, Stephanie Courtney, who is fam- famously Flo from Progressive. Yes. Uh, yep. <laughs> and, yep. um, and it was all of us at like the Leno family uh, get together and all of us are wearing denim like shirt but i had gotten uh a writer from mad jim wise was writing for that show and i believe rich tellerico who's a second city alum who's written for mad snl and key and peel um they wrote a bit and asked if i want to be a part of it and so it was like, it was a really short-lived show. I think it lasted months, you know? And then that's when they like gave back the show to Leno. Remember that debacle? It was yeah, yeah. like poorly handled, I feel like. Um, and it was very confusing. But um, yeah, so there was a show called The Jay Leno Show that was not The Tonight Show. And I got to tell you, I love Conan. I love Conan. I've been listening to his podcast, Conan Needs a Friend. He's so wonderful. He's so funny. And, um, you know, I think he got kind of treated badly myself, but. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a, I've, I learned following that, that like this business is very difficult, even for people that are super successful and popular. Right. There are elements that you can't control. And like, I know that Leno, like there are things that I respect about Leno because like Leno was like a road dog. Like that dude worked hard. Right. Um, and did all his touring and did all this. And like Conan had his own TV show when he was in his early thirties. Like yes. he was really fortunate, super talented. And so I feel like they both made good on what they were offered and they both sort of got screwed. And I'm sure there's stuff that they, that they did that didn't help them or, you know, may have helped them, but that hard work is an important thing. So like I used to live across the hall from Seth Meyers. So when I was in Chicago, we're of the same generation of comedy Mm -hmm. and Seth, I've never, I know Seth, but I've never worked with him per se. And Seth always established himself as an easy person to work with. And one of the hardest workers in the room. And so when you see his success to be prolific and to work hard, it's like, well, yeah, that part of that opportunity is this, that you have to do hard work. Like you got to do the work. Right. Um, But yeah, I'm a big fan of Conan. I mean, I grew up Letterman was my favorite. Of course. Yeah. uh, But even Johnny Carson, like I was talking to my wife about this recently and I was like, 
and this going back to my mom who worked as a server who wouldn't get home until 10 or 11 that most nights we were because we're talking about the kids bedtime and like I was like most nights when I was a kid I don't think I was going to sleep until at least 11 because I remember distinctly always seeing Carson's monologue so in yeah. central in central it came on at 10 30 so I would see Carson yes. yeah. in 45 and then I would often see Letterman in elementary school. I would see Letterman's monologue. So that's 1130. So there you go. That's pretty cool. That's pretty <laughs> cool. And talking about work, uh, did you ever do stand-up at all? Because that's brutal. I mean, that is such a special skill for people to be up there for, what, 40 minutes or whatever they do for a show. And, of course, we've got the greats like Chappelle and other people um, that, you know, go on forever. But uh, I had never have in I I feel like now there are more hybrid performers that existed when I came up, at least in Chicago. It was like two very different lanes. Are you going to do sketch and improv and you will go this way? Or are you going to do stand up and you're going to go this way? And even though they're all in the comedy community, they were not the same path at all. So. Now there seems to be more people that sort of straddle that line or do a little bit of both. But at the time, I sort of fully immersed myself in that. And I've done very little solo performance. The only time I've really done it is like showcase or auditions. Right. Like never done a solo show. I've directed solo shows. But um, I really like working in ensembles and with people. But part of the reason I love comedy is definitely stand up. Like grew up listening and watching stand up and and loving sketch as well but i would say probably when i was younger it was the more comedy that i intook was stand up exactly so getting back to your career um was was mad tv i mean you've done some other things but was mad tv a, a door opener for you in terms of getting other work or um um or what was the door opener for you? Because you've been in a lot of different performances and movies and you were featured in Dave and the Made a Maze recently, which is really cool. It's a really cool movie. I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful independent film that has had found a life all over the world. It's wonderful, really cool. wonderful. Um, I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. I don't know where you, it sometimes is on available on Amazon, but like it, they get the rights changed. So I'm not exactly sure where it's available, but if you can find it, it's a really cool film. And it's yeah. Oh yeah. Um, in regard to opening doors, I would say, yes. I mean, they all, all of the work that you have begets more work, right? So you gain experience and skill. Maybe someone sees you, maybe you create a connection. There's a network that is built. Oh, I love working with that person. Let's bring them in for this. So a lot of stuff that can work in the aspect of like offering as opposed to auditioning, even though when you work, you create a reel or a body of work that you can show to other people to familiar so they can familiarize themselves with you. So all of those things help is I don't you know, it's hard to quantify how those things exactly helped, but I have to say that they helped in some way, of course. I would say in general, Mad TV is not the same career bump that SNL is. 
Because in my opinion, if it were, Stephanie Weir would be a household name. Because mm-hmm. to me, Stephanie Weir is on the same level as Amy Poehler and Kristen Wiig as far as a comic character performer. And Stephanie's had an amazing career. And I don't know how she feels about this, but I just feel like she would have been a bigger star if she came out of the, right. the thing is, is there's so many things that are working differently in that because Mad TV was owned by Warner Brothers, but distributed by Fox. Right. SNL is an NBC Universal production under Broadway Video as a production company, which is Lauren Michaels. But it, it begats them to create more NBC Universal stars. And Fox is always looking for, you know, they were looking for their own programming. And, to step, and so they were distributing Mad. They didn't own it. So that sort of didn't help Mad TV performers. Now, Jordan Peele and Keegan are doing all right. And Ike is doing all right. But I would say in general, is that bump the same? Maybe not. Maybe not. It certainly has helped me. Um, Hollywood is not a meritocracy. And there are so many factors that we can't control. So you sort of do the work. And like Los Angeles is the most consistently humbling place. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to audition to be on a UCB mod team. Uh, mod is like their sketch teams. I will not get paid to be a part of this team. I'll, I might receive some sort of nominal cut of the door but I am auditioning with several hundred other people. Wow. We have never been a series regular on a sketch comedy show. Probably have never performed sketch comedy at the second city or at the Kennedy center or the Goodman theater. It is consistently humbling, right? I'm not in control of this. I can't hit the game. I can't hate the game. That's the way it is. So I go do what I do. So I'm going to go do some characters for them. And if they deem me good enough to be on a team in which will really achieve me nothing <laughs> money <laughs> than the joy of performing sketch comedy then yeah so it is you have to continue to do the work lately i've been um i direct more and write more than i have in the past uh, i directed and co-wrote a, a show called the revolution will be improvised that was at the kennedy center last year wow um, wow so like I do what I can to try to make a living. And, and also as a person in their forties with kids and a family, and I, I need to do my best to support them as well as try to be home as much as possible. So like, I love touring and going on the road to perform, but that isn't necessarily where my life is currently. So like I can, there was a time where I, I was fortunate enough to have a show I directed playing in Chicago a show I co-wrote playing in New York and a show I was performing in Los Angeles on a single night, right? Wonderful. Wow. So like you can sort of spread yourself out as well. So it's hard. I I come from a very entitled like place and privileged place to say like, it's hard in this business because I've gotten to do so much, but frankly, it's really hard to make a living in this business. Well, I did. I wanted to ask about the anxiety of being a gig worker because that's exactly what you are. And uh, I no. can't stand it. I hate it. Yeah. The financial stability, the financial instability of this 
I think it wears on you. And, um, and so to find, as I said, like that success that I had early on in my mid twenties to make a career out of it and make, make a living affected me because I didn't have to have a plan B. And so everyone's like, you know, you got to jump in feet first and do it a hundred percent. Um, and it's like, yeah, but then you, I do encourage people to like, look, it is really hard to make a living. Like there was a performer from, um, the film Sound of Metal, which is a really good film, uh, was nominated for a bunch of awards a couple of years ago. And this performer was like in the original cast of Children of a Lesser God, did all this amazing theater work, performed on Broadway of an amazing stature and skill. His career, <laughs> he was nominated for an Oscar. He was still, his career though, was not actor. He could not make a living as an actor. He worked at the Los Angeles Municipal Court as a sign language interpreter. That was his job. And here he is nominated for an Oscar. So like for every George Clooney and people that, you know, and Mark Wahlberg that have $50 million estates in Italy and in the hills, the middle class actor is evaporating. The person that just needs to make $75,000 to $100,000 a year, which like is not, is not no... Is not a ton of money, but it is not an astronomical amount of money in this day and age either. Especially in LA. It's going away. Yeah. And so non-union commercials are completely prevalent. So the union actor can't make money. As, and so streaming has affected our sources of income and how residuals are presented in that way. So like, it's a really tough time, frankly, to make a living as a, as a performer in the, as a performer, a writer or director in the business. So you have to spread yourself out. So with that becomes financial instability. And now you add in life and kids and energy and all that. It's like, it's almost impossible to be at your best when it comes time to perform. Right, right. Being this with me, right? So it's, I've been, I have been extremely lucky. And so I say with a nod to myself, hey, people would be very happy to have the amount of success that I've had. But I will also say it's been extremely difficult. I still have debt. I still, have, you know, uh, you know, crippling insecurity and financial instability. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's the dog again. She's, you know, She's a good dog, but whatever. Um, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about your wife. Is this marriage number one for you? My one and only. Oh, good for you. All right. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, one and only, one and done. Uh, we have two children. We have an 11-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And my wife, um, we met in the Chicago comedy community. and. She comes from an acting background and then she'd done some directing and producing and then eventually sort of left the business sort of doing arts and then arts nonprofit work mm -hmm. and started working with uh, former foster youth in Hollywood and was attracted to that work. So she went back to school and got her master's in social work. Oh, like me. I have a master's in social work. I know. I noticed that. Yay. So she, um, she is now a Department of Children and Family Services uh, social worker for Los Angeles County. So she's trying to make sure that kids and families are, you know, protected and doing all right. And so that's her day to day. 
we have very good insurance because we have government insurance and um, she has an extremely tough job. And when I have a, a, a poopy improv show, um, it, it pales in comparison to her day to day. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's just beautiful. I love hearing that and making a difference with these kids. It's so important. It really is. And I'm sure she's wonderful. I'm sure your children are brilliant and terrific as well. She's the best human being I know. Um, so I'm very fortunate and she's uh, considerably better human than I ever will be. And so she's inspiring uh, and a really hard worker and an excellent mother. Um, so I, I, yeah, I won the lottery in that regard. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I've got a great mate too. He likes to cook. So it's great. great. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah. So <laughs> And clean. Yeah, I'm really, it's a trifecta. Brings me my Starbucks lattes, likes to cook and clean. So, you know, can't ask for You ask for Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so um, we were talking before the, we started the recording about some of your teaching. You're just finishing up a, uh, a gig with Cal State, was it? Um, with uh, Cal Arts. Cal so Arts. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, known as Cal Arts, Cal Institute of the Arts. Okay. A uh, private arts education uh, university started by Walt Disney. Wow. Yeah. So uh, do you teach much and where do you teach and you have plans for teaching in the near future? And do you ever teach online? Uh, I have taught online. I don't do it much now. Uh, I have been taking classes online. Um, oh, what, what classes have you been taking? Can I recommend a class? Uh, oh, absolutely. You can say whatever you like. Um, well, this is in regard to screenwriting. Uh-huh. I've been taking classes at a place called Roadmap Writers, um, and it's all online and um, relatively time zone friendly. Um, and they, they're working with screenwriters in helping you create your pitch and sort of marketing yourself as a writer. The business aspect of the entertainment business, I am not good at. Entertainment, I love. Entertainment business, I do not love. So I need to get better at that. And during the pandemic, I took some screenwriting classes uh, and have written some pilots. I'm finishing up writing a feature right now and hoping to market and pitch those out. So it has been extremely helpful in that. So I highly recommend them if you're a screenwriter it's certainly they have screenwriting classes but it is more about the business of it so when you come to roadmap you should have one or two projects that you feel are in pretty good right i'm i'm in one uh right now i'm taking sketch with um the sketch comedy school oh Uh, with mark warzeka yes i am Uh uh-huh mark warzeka is one of my favorite humans oh my gosh oh i was in a i was in a um uh, improv group with him called Ditka, uh, named after Mike Ditka, former coach of the Chicago. Right, right. Uh, with him and a couple other Second City alums, Brian Gallivan, who is now a producer on the Apple TV show Shrinking. Yes, yes. Who is uh, an actor on a show on CBS called Bob Loves Abashola. I think that's how you say the name. Um, but Mark was my director. I, I, he was my castmate in Las Vegas. He was my director in Chicago. He was my castmate in, L, in LA, my director in LA. He's, I've learned so much from Mark Warzeka. I love that guy to pieces. 
Yeah, I'm very grateful to have gotten in the class. It's a lot of fun. And uh, and it's just, you know, doing the work. And for me, that's discipline. And I'm kind of ADHD or something because to sit down and write, you know, sometimes I'm forced to have a deadline. So then I'll actually sit down and do something. But it really do take time. Like some writers every day, they sit down for an hour and they write. No, <laughs> no it's here's what I would say. I feel I'm so thrilled and proud when I finish something because it's tangible. It exists on my screen. It is in the folder as a completed script, but getting there is not a natural fit for me. It still feels like homework. I do not. So classes really helped keep me accountable. Yeah. Do the assignment, finish it at this level. It's incremental growth and stuff. I am not, it, it is also hard to sort of make space for something when there's zero revenue potential at that point, like everything I'm writing is on spec, it's for free. So it's very tough to make space for it, even though it is thrilling when you complete something. But I have so many ideas in my head that are not completed. Um, so it can be very hard. So I find that the pandemic, we all needed some sort of release. And then there was a lot of online instruction that came in, into play. So I took a class from people in New York. I took a class from people in Chicago and, and the assignment level writing and longer narrative writing. So I had done a bunch of sketch writing and I'd done some pilot writing and development, but never as an individual, always collaboratively. Right. And so I wanted to do that for my sanity <laughs> and to like follow through on a project and an idea. So um I found classes were extremely beneficial so I could learn academic nature and technique, but also to keep me accountable. Right, I exactly. Need, I need the structure. So are you WGA? No. No, okay. No. So I've been paid on certain things as WGA, but I've never been a must join. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, no, I'm not, but there's, there's talk of a strike. I know. I was going to say it's a topical thing right now. So who knows what's going to happen? Um, it'll affect everybody, regardless, um, because it'll affect how studios and networks are sort of bringing in new material. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to ask the question that um, if you had advice for somebody that's <laughs> thinking about into the, entering the well-paying career of an improviser. <laughs> Um, and, and that's my goal in life. I teach. I teach a lot. And that's my goal. You know, there's not a lot of performance opportunities here in Naples, Florida. Um, yeah. So everything is kind of online for me. But uh, what would you say to somebody that's thinking about doing it and, you know, taking the plunge? And where would you guide them? How would you guide them? Well, uh, I will quote my my friend and a former mentor, Jethro Nolan, who was a coach of mine at IO that said to me, and I don't know if these are his words, but he said it to me. He said, improvisation is a terrible way to make a living, but a wonderful way to make a life. And I think that that is an excellent point of view. Now, does it transfer to other things? Absolutely. A million other things. It can inform your life in a wonderful way. It can inform your professional career in a, in a wonderful way. And it can prepare you as a creative in a wonderful way, as a writer, as a performer, as a director, 
as a producer because the collaborative nature of it, the listening nature of it, the supportive nature of it, the tenants that have to exist for any improvisation to be any anything worthwhile are all things that I think are important to any creative process and really to anyone that wants to live a life with joy. So if you want to do it as a career, there aren't that many people that can probably write improviser on their tax returns. Maybe there's one and his name is Wayne Brady. Everybody else, <laughs> right? But it can prepare you for so many things. And also it's a wonderful way to spend time. Like the people that I know from the improv community are hilarious and fun and kind for the most part. Like the lion's share of them are just phenomenal people. So I would say you need to ask yourself, why are you getting into it? And if it's going to be a hobby, that's okay. Because it's going to be extremely difficult. Like, I feel like you can be really, 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 really good at it. And you're still not going to make a living. You don't have to, you don't have to be the top 1% to be a lawyer. You have to be the top 75% of people pursuing it to be a lawyer. Yeah. But there's only, you know, 95% of people in the Screen Actors Guild don't make a living from it. So there's 300,000 voting members or whatever. And most of those people can't make a living. They don't earn insurance. Insurance threshold is $26,000. That's not a livable wage in 2023. So there, you have to ask, why are you getting into it? If you're interested in it, then I would say, humble yourself to learn and constantly be a student. Improvisation and mastery of it takes time and you should continually be willing to learn from mentors, new approaches, developing your own point of view. There is no one school that does it the right way. There are a million ways to bake this cake. So humble yourself to learn, uh, be kind and a pleasure to work with, uh, talk less and listen more. Right, right. Um, yeah, the, I mean, but then, and know that like, it, but it's everywhere. Like live performance of improvisation can exist everywhere. Does it mean it's going to get you a million dollars in, you know, the middle of Kansas? No, but if you enjoy going to do an improv show on the weekend at this small theater for 50 people, great. I continually perform in Santa Monica for 15 people. And it's still exciting to me. Wow. You know? wow. Where, where in Santa Monica are you, do you perform? The West Side Comedy Theater. Oh, yeah. So you know Rich Baker then? Of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, hopefully. And I would just say, learn, learn and, and spread the word and be, be spread joy. Spread. Yes. Joy yes. For the work. Like the world. Right now, we have the collective traumatic experience of the pandemic, plus all of the division, plus all of the stuff that's happening in the world really makes for a world that can be very tough to live in for many people. And there are still people that are oppressed, that are suffering. And I feel like suffering to uh, the antidote for suffering is listening. And the antidote for our soul is laughter and joy. And so if we can spread that and if we can be good human beings, we can use more human beings that do that. So if you want to join up on improv and be a part of that, I say, come on board.
Well, it's so touching. And you are a very humble person, very funny. And I'm so happy we had the opportunity to get together. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days when I finally get to L.A. So I finally get to Naples. Yeah, we'll come to Naples. That's easier. You come to Naples. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you, Frank. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.